And if you think about where we are right now with COVID, for example, uh, there's this, been this huge mitigation strategy of sending everybody online. Yes. Okay. And of course, the country's wrestling with that. But things will never go back to the way that they were. Uh, regardless of whether or not students return to classes in the fall, out there right now are people who have been working on what will be the next version of online education around the country. There are tools that are being built. There are, are, are companies that are starting up because they're going to solve those problems. And if you think about the music industry, the newspaper industry, even the hospital industry, over time what's changed about them came about by these sort of disruptions that people didn't always notice up front but were happening behind the scenes. So right now there is the next version of what online will be and we want to make sure that we are thinking about that and taking that into consideration not just for ourselves but because we want to help more of our learners to be successful hello and welcome to ingenious you the podcast where we talk about higher education innovative practice and leading edge thinking your host is dr melissa morris olson Higher education is undergoing a transformation which we have not seen in our lifetime. Prior to the pandemic, higher education was already experiencing disruption, which has only accelerated in this current moment. Nearly all colleges and universities are scrambling to redefine their futures, and for many, their very survival is now in question. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with leading edge thinkers whose expertise and experience are at the forefront of this transformation. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, and other professionals who are experimenting with new approaches and ways of thinking about higher education. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share this with your friends and colleagues so they can join the conversation too. Ingenious U is a production of CELIP, the Center for Higher Education, Leadership, and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. To learn more about CELIP, visit our website at baypath.edu forward slash Chellip. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ingenious You. Today, I am joined by Dr. Greg Fowler, who serves as president of Southern New Hampshire University Global Campus. And in this capacity, Dr. Fowler has oversight of academic functions in support of the university's learning experiences and modalities, including online, competency-based, and hybrid, meeting the rapidly changing demands of the workforce and global communities. He is a two-time Fulbright senior scholar with 25 plus years of experience in higher ed management. He has published and presented at events throughout the world and has held senior level academic and administrative positions at many institutions, including Western Governors University, Penn State, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. And if that were not enough, he also currently serves as a commissioner for the New England Commission of Higher Ed, um, affectionately known as NECHI by those of us here in the Northeast. And so, Greg, I am delighted to welcome you to Ingenious You today. Thank you for the opportunity to share some time with you as well. 
Now, I typically start out by asking our guests to tell us something about their life, their career journey. So I do want to ask you where your career, where your journey began, and how did it wind up leading you into higher education as a career path? Sure. So um, my story starts down in a small southwest Georgia town called Albany, Georgia. Um, and it is um, there that myself and my seven brothers and sisters grew up with my two parents in a two-bedroom house. Um, and the story of our lives being transformed by education is one that has continued to set an example for me in the work that I'm trying to do when it comes to helping other people um, change their lives through um, the power of education as well. So uh, my college, my first uh, college place was Morehouse College there in Atlanta, Georgia, an HBCU um, that um, taught me a lot about some of the equity issues that we are often talking about in higher education today, as well as sort of the larger society issues that are around that. And from there, I moved on to the National Endowment for the Humanities and other places beyond that. But I think the thing that really has inspired me, again, goes back to those early days um, and the changes that I've seen in my life as a result of higher education, but also because my mother was um, a teacher of um, secondary school in Moultrie, Georgia, not too far from there. So have always in my family had a, a sort of trend towards education, engaging with people and trying to help them change their lives as a result of that. Mm, boy, and it's, you know, I hear this story over and over again, when a parent is a teacher, Yes. how powerful that impact can be. And just curious, any of your siblings also in education? Um, I've had several who did some work in education in some way or the other. Um, some of them have done lecturing. Some of them do instruction. Um, I'm the only one who actually works in an actual college. But uh, my brother, for example, um, he was actually one of the ones who came into higher education later in life. Um, I think he actually finished one of his degrees during the time I was finishing my time in college as well. But he went off to um, major in mortuary science oh. and has recently been on the front pages of uh, Time Magazine, um, Good Morning America, CNN, and a number of other places have interviewed him because um, Albany for the early period with the COVID um, situation was one of the hot spots, um, the hot spot in Georgia outside of New York. And unfortunately, it's not the way he would, of course, want to have to be on, on television or other things, but it certainly has demonstrated his ability to sort of pay forward the impact of the learnings that he's had around the world to um, the community around him as well. So lots of um, my family are also ministers. Um, in fact, we are, my family has a lot of pastors um, and ministers in it, which is a different form of teaching, but also again goes back to that idea of being able to transform people's lives through engaging with them and helping them engage in that larger conversation about learning. Absolutely. Oh, boy. Well, I'm sure your your family must be very, very proud of you and your brother and all of your siblings. So um, so how did that uh, journey lead you then to southern New Hampshire, where you are currently president of the global campus? I'm going to give you a two prong question here. So I'm I'm curious how you got to southern New Hampshire and then what does it mean to be the president of their global campus? What what exactly is the global campus? Sure. So um, after I. Uh moved to Washington, D.C. and started working for the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, I spent a number of years there for those who don't know, NEH is the sister agency for the National Endowment for the Arts. It tends to do things in the humanities similar to the types of grants and projects that are done in the um, arts. So a lot of work, if you've seen the Ken Burns Civil War series or a number of other series like that, those things tend to be funded 
by NEH, um, as well as a lot of the museum and preservation work and a lot of the grants that you see in local communities when it comes to elementary and secondary schools or um, higher education institutions as well. I did that for a number of years and then got the opportunity to go off and uh, become an instructor once I completed my graduate degree um, at Penn State and spent a number of years there. Um, when I was in Penn State, um, I got my first Fulbright and was uh, fortunate enough to go over to Berlin and spend some time in, with the uh, Fulbright organization, uh, both teaching and lecturing around the country. And Europe, as you may know, has spent a number of years tied to something called the Bologna Accords, which is an attempt to rethink higher education and unify some of the systems and practices throughout Europe in a way that allowed students to move back and forth. As the European Union has continued to try to find this identity, it's certainly tried to make sure that if you went to university in Spain or Germany or France, that what a degree was in one had parallel alignment to what was happening in other places. I came back from that inspired by a lot of the work they were trying to do to think about how might we think about higher education differently in the US. And several years later, got an opportunity to um, begin building a new institution out in Salt Lake City, Utah, when um, the president out there called and asked me if I'd be interested in helping them begin to build an institution called Western Governors University. Oh. Uh, Western Governors was built because in 19, the early 1990s, uh, Roy Romer and Mike Levitt of Colorado and Utah were two governors who were trying to figure out how to solve the problem that a lot of businesses in their states were talking about, which was students were graduating without the skill sets that they needed to from college to actually serve them well in the workforce. And to do that, they began to build out a competency-based institution. And when I started that work, it was a very small institution, about 3,000 students um, and about 500 graduates. And over the next period of time, I worked with them in the academic unit to build out both the coaching, the faculty models, the learning experiences, and a lot of tools that were not yet at that point in higher education being built out for those types of things. Um, I spent six years doing that. By the time I left, WGU was at about 35,000 students and has continued to grow. Um, they are uh, as big as we are at SNHU at this point, about 140,000 students. Um, and so they've continued to uh, manifest a lot of those things. I ended up at SNHU after spending a year at a smaller college here as the Vice President of Academic Affairs and then got a call from SNHU as their work was beginning to take off. About They had about 13,000 students on the online side at the time. And the work was beginning to get so big that a lot of the systems they had put in place to make sure that um, the academic quality was there, um, which was run through the physical campus here in um, Hooks in New Hampshire. Um, a lot of those things were growing to the point where they needed to build an academic unit within the online site to begin to um, take care of a lot of the um, administration, a lot of the quality assurance, a lot of the um, oversight of the faculty and curriculum pieces. So that was my job when I first started here as vice president of academic administration and then as chief academic officer. And um, we continue to grow those programs. As you mentioned, um, we are one of the largest institutions in the country now, about 140,000 students. Um, and a lot of that work is not just simply traditional online work, but it is a whole lot of different types of learning opportunities around the world. We try to make sure that as part of our mission, we have what I call our AAA policy, the academic quality paired with affordability and accessibility um, to allow students to um, 
succeed in places where they might not have otherwise. So we try to make sure we spend a lot of time thinking about how to meet our learners where they are, never to lower the bar, but to figure out why they haven't been successful and figure out what are the things we can do that might help them to be successful. Some of those things are academic. A lot of them don't always have to be academic. A lot of the reasons that students don't succeed have a lot more to do with life happens or gets in the way of some of their dreams and trying to make sure that um, we think those things through. So as we've done that, um, we've built out different iterations of our learning models around the world. And that's where the global campus piece begins to play out. So while we always have that academic core, we try to make sure that iterations of the learning experiences that lead to the competencies and outcomes that we're thinking of mirror the experiences that our students are coming to us with. So while we may have online traditional um, I know that, that sounds a little bit oxymoronic, but it's uh, the, the sort of people who you think about, the adult students here in the States. We also have um, iterations of our learning experiences that play out for refugee camps in Africa, for example. Um, and we're building out experiences in Spanish down in uh, Mexico and Colombia um, for different populations as well. We're trying to think about how we partner with community partners in different places. So we are partners with the Da Vinci Institute out in Los Angeles, where they a lot of their students um, are high school students who are ultimately are trying to get to a, a college experience, a college degree. Um, but a lot of them tend to be foster kids. A lot of them tend to be homeless kids. They have come up with ways to sort of support those other needs while we support the academic needs for the students. So we work with them. Certainly, we work with workforce partners. You may have seen that we recently partnered with Dunkin' Donuts, but we're also partners with Walmart and Anthem Insurance and others to make sure that their employers the employers in those places are getting the skills that for their employees that they need as well. So Global Campus is really trying to figure out what are the right experiences for the students to meet them where they are and to provide that experience and credential that they're going to need to move forward um, in all of those ways, while also thinking about um, some of the experiences that we need at the graduate level here on our face-to-face -face campus um, and some of the things that that will then allow us to do at the undergraduate level um, in our face-to-face -face campus here in Hookset as well. Yeah, wow. That is what a, you you must get up every day and be excited, so excited about the work you're doing. I mean, it, it's it's and I one of the things I think a lot of people don't know, and I'm so glad you talked about it, is the social impact work that is seems to be an increasingly bigger part of the mission of Southern New Hampshire. So um, and it, that and I, I know that comes from your president as well as it, it from what you have shared it. it seems to be a very important part in terms of your own motivation um, yeah. for working at Southern New Hampshire and also how you see the mission of the university going forward, perhaps. Absolutely. It's one of the things, one of our board members um, who just recently passed away, a very famous thinker and um, member of the Harvard Business School, Clayton Christensen, often yeah. talks about um, the what's the job you see yourself trying to do? And this is one of the things that we talk about a lot uh, when it comes to what kind of institution we are, what purpose we are trying to um, fulfill. And while we certainly value all of the other things that higher ed does, the research capabilities, um, certainly um, the other things that get tied to it. Um, certainly, as I said, I came out of Morehouse. So the HBCU has a very specific mission that it's trying to fulfill as part of higher education, as well as military schools, same gender schools. I mean, all of them have roles to play. And one of the things that we have very much focused our attention and power upon is making sure that those things play out in a way that impact 
all the students we possibly can from around the country um, in different ways. So being able to say our mission really is to think about not necessarily trying to be the top research institution in the country, but trying to make sure that, again, that affordability and accessibility while maintaining academic quality um, opens new pathways to more and more students who might not otherwise have that opportunity put in front of them. Mm, and I can't personally cannot imagine a more impactful mission, given where we are as a country and as a world today. And and so I'm I'm uh, very glad in terms of how you have framed this. Um, and you also talked about um, I mean, you are very, very large. Are you but you and Western governors are about the same size at this point? Yes, yes. Um, and it is, I think, Western governors, we're about, they have about 140,000 students, and as do we. Um, we have some additional students in different other types of experiences. I just mentioned uh, our partnership with LRNG, for example, where we are focused very much on uh, helping students who are in inner cities who sure. may not necessarily be interested in getting a degree per se, but are interested in getting a credential or having that credential tied to the work that they're trying to do. So we're working with um, people like Mayor Redfin in um, Birmingham, Alabama, who's also my fellow Morehouse brother, um, uh, who's trying to think about using libraries and learning centers in the middle of the um, urban areas to give these students additional skill sets that may eventually stack into a degree, but doesn't necessarily start there. So the skills that they get are very much tied to the experiences that they would be partnered with in places like Gap or Apple around the country. So in addition to that 140,000, I think there are about another 50,000 students in those types of circumstances that we're trying to help who are tied to a credential, but not necessarily a degree. Okay. Well, However you get there, you're talking about a really big and a very complex organizational structure and, uh, and entity. And I know you've received a lot of recognition, including you've been named uh, 2020 Most Innovative University in the North, um, one of Fast Company's 50 Most Innovative Companies, um, and several other recognitions. And so um, from the outside looking in, it seems like it would be very difficult for such a large and complex institution to also be as nimble and as innovative and adaptive as you obviously are. And so can you tell our listeners how that works? I mean, how, what, you must have a secret sauce and any takeaways for other college leaders who are looking to become more adaptive uh, in this current moment. So I always say a couple of things around this. The first of them is knowing what your North Star is. And one of the things we spend a huge amount of time doing is saying, how do we make sure that everything we do places the learner at the center of all of our work? Um, in fact, um, whenever we talk to our teams and we're dealing with training or development, we often say to them, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're trying to figure out what to do, start with the question of what's the right thing for the learner and let that guide you. And if you can answer that question, you will almost always be in great shape here and never will you find us penalizing someone or criticizing someone for doing what was right for the learner. Um, so if that sort of guides you, then the curriculum work, the structures that you build and everything else flows from that and being able to say, how do we shape it around that as opposed to anything else? So um, all of the work that we are doing is trying to think about how does that learner um, influence how we move things forward? So when we think about learners who are in refugee camps in the middle of, of uh, Africa, if we think about learners who are out in rural America um, and say, 
what's their situation and what's the solution for them, then it becomes a very different conversation and it unifies all of the things we are trying to do and it begins to bring some type of cohesion and make sense to it. That's sort of the guiding principle behind it. At the same time, I often tell the team, we have to continue to be agile in our thinking. There's always this tendency to try to let the, replace the, as I told you, my family's minister. So to replace the Old Testament with the New Testament and say, now this is the gospel now. This is the, this is the rule. This is how you have to do it. And it's like, no, the goal is to constantly be dynamically thinking about those things and never to get yourself so caught up in a rigid structure that you can't consider other opportunities or possibilities as you're moving forward. So um, many times I, we walk into meetings and we talk about why can't this happen uh, as opposed to why, uh, what are the things that will force us to do something? So that type of approach allows us to think outside of the box on a regular basis um, with the work we are trying to do. And it's helped us in a number of circumstances to get beyond some of the traditional um, things that would have kept us from doing some of the work that we needed to do for our, our learners around the country. Well, and you know, you may have seen the the some of the the data, the research on barriers to innovation, and and surprisingly, perhaps one is the fact that when an institution becomes successful, there is a tendency to lock down because you believe those things that you did that made you successful are the things you need to keep doing, and that can get in the way of of having a continually agile kind of mindset. So it's it's interesting to hear you hear you talk about how that's something that you all are very intentional about. Yeah, it's actually a poster in my office is actually I think it's a quote from Bill Gates where we talk about sometimes success is actually the biggest enemy to in innovation um, mm -hmm. because you think that what you're doing is what led to your success. Um, there's another quote that I often use that says, you know, our critics are our biggest source of growth. <laughs> um, being able to listen to them um, and think outside of the box about it. But you're very right. One could very easily settle into this principle of clearly we're doing something right because we're continuing to grow. But I go back to what I said a little while ago about Clayton Christensen. And one of the things he talks about in disruptive innovation is when you take a look at the big companies, um, particularly the ones if you take a look at the Fortune 500 and you recognize how few of those com companies that are that were there 50 years ago are still on that list. Mm. Almost all of those companies, when they were in the height of their growth, were doing things right. Um, it wasn't, if you took a look at the decisions that they made, it wasn't that they tended to all make bad decisions. They were doing what they were doing for the um, customers that they were serving, for the people who they were engaged with. It, many of those things made exact sense to that, but it didn't always allow for thinking about how to think about what's coming next. And uh, Paul is always very, um, it's helping us always think about, you know, something will follow us, something will challenge us, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to disrupt ourselves. And it's only going to get more and more um, rapid in the amount of change and evolution that we're seeing. Another thing he says on a regular basis is, um, this is the slowest as things will be for the rest of your life. Uh, and thinking like that and thinking about out there somewhere, I mean, if you think about where we are right now with COVID, for example, uh, there's this, been this huge mitigation strategy of sending everybody online. Yes. Uh -huh. And of course, the country's wrestling with that. But things will never go back to the way that they were 
regardless of whether or not students return to classes in the fall, out there right now are people who have been working on what will be the next version of online education around the country. There are tools that are being built. There are, are, are companies that are starting up because they're going to solve those problems. And if you think about the music industry, the newspaper industry, even the hospital industry, over time was changed about them came about by these sort of disruptions that people didn't always notice up front, but were happening behind the scenes. So right now, there is the next version of what online will be. And we want to make sure that we are thinking about that and taking that into consideration, not just for ourselves, but because we want to help more of our learners to be successful. Sure. And the, the Paul you're talking about is your Paul LeBlanc, your president. Um, yes, the university president. Yeah. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a freefall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Higher Education Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then we designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. If you've completed graduate level coursework in higher education, you may be able to complete the program in as little as three years. All coursework is online. Students receive an abundance of personalized support, both from their peers and from our expert faculty. We are now accepting applications for our October start. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step. Visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. University has been named a great college to work for um, by the Chronicle of Higher Ed every year, I believe. Since every year, yes. and <laughs> I think we're there. I think there's only only two co colleges in the country that have that uh, who can say that. Wow. Well, that's that's pretty significant because you know it, uh, on what. So on one hand, you're describing a culture where things never stand still, um, and on the other, you're describing a culture where, where people seem to be pretty engaged and happy. And I know a number of the factors that go into that survey and, and what it suggests is that people really like working at Southern New Hampshire for a variety of reasons. So um, are there some specific practices that you've put in place that contribute to the positive work culture? That's, that's one. And then how do you balance that? Um, because I, you know, I know it where I, my institution at Bay Path, you know, every once in a while people will say, can we just stop inventing? Can we stop, can we stop doing things new and take a rest? And of course the answer is no, for the very reason that you've just articulated that you just, you don't know who's behind you in terms of what's coming next. And there, there is really no room to sit back and, and rest, if you will. So, um, can can you can you speak to that? How how is it or that you've you've created so, kind of a culture? Sure. So I I think the thing that we say all the time to 
each other and to the team, because it is a team, um, is we need to be for our team members what we want our team members to be for our learners at all times. And if we if we uh, set the, the pace and set the tone and set the practices um, with them that we want them to mirror, then it becomes part of who they are and not simply something that they're being pushed into doing. So we spend a lot of time trying to think about how are we reflecting um, an understanding of their needs? How are we reflecting um, the type of empathy, the type of situational awareness that we need to, to make sure that um, our team members feel valued and heard as part of what we're trying to do? I think the single most important thing in any company that I've observed um, over the years um, is when things tend to go wrong, almost all of them tend to go wrong because of lack of communication. Um, and, and when I talk about communication, it's less about talking and more about listening. Um, and so we put a lot of tools in place to make sure we're hearing what's going on at all times within the company. Um, we've got a lot of things that we talk about when it comes to um, are we hearing the places where we need to be improving? Do we have systems in place that allow people to speak up um, and have that seen as a value? Um, we spend a lot of time on explicitly talking about um, the kind of culture we want to have. Um, we've had a lot of um, discussions about all of those types of things in a way that makes it part of a deliberate process and an explicit conversation as opposed to simply expecting those things to happen. Um, and we focus on that a lot. So I think putting the tools in place that allow you to listen um, and then, of course, being what you want others to be um, and not creating this um, my parents would say, it's a do as I do, not a do as I say culture um, that we like to believe we are trying to create here. So we don't always get it right. Um, and I think part of recognizing that you don't always get it right and allowing people to see that, you know, even in leadership, there is this idea of growth through sometimes failure. And I use failure in the broadest sense here that uh, we learn from the things that we don't get right um, when you're trying to move as fast as we are doing. Um, there, you you want to try some things and you know learn very quickly that they're not going to work and be able to say we learn from that and we'll keep moving forward as opposed to everything has to. If anyone out there who um, believes in the mythology that you get everything right, it, it's just not being honest about the whole conversation. So I think that type of transparency and learning is one of the things we're trying to uh, continue to get better at. And I think is one of the reasons why most of our team would say um, that they that they feel heard and valued. Mm, boy, well, and that's, that's certainly uh, important, I think, for all of us right now, more than ever to take to take to heart, um, and to give people the freedom to whatever extent we can to fail forward, right? Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. Let me, let me change gears here a little bit. I, you're, you are an invited participant and active contributor to something called the MAPS project, which stands for um, modeling, analyzing, prototyping, and sharing ideas to chart the shifting landscape of higher ed, which sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, I understand that it's a group facilitated by the Sorensen Impact Center at the David Eckley School of Business at the University of Utah. So can you can you tell us a little bit about what the project is and any insights coming out of the work um, so far? Sure. So um, I got invited to um, participate in this work. It is in part funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and some others um, to uh, work with a number of other higher ed um, 
influencers. Some of these are certainly other um, college presidents or foundation presidents, but there are a number of other types of organizations. Um, we've got, for example, members of this uh, team are people from uh, Coursera um, and some non traditional higher ed um, influences as well. And the work really is around trying to understand what the um, situation is with higher ed. Um, as you point out, there's a lot of conversation around this sort of turbulent period and the things that are changing in it. Some of that is tied to things like the financial implications of mergers and acquisitions and how some colleges are struggling. Um, that's played a, a, a role in some of this. Some of it's also tied to how do we deal with some of the big issues in higher education that don't, don't always get the um, attention that they deserve. For example, one of the big questions we've spent a lot of time thinking about are what we call education deserts. And what we mean by that are these places around the country where you have populations that are more than an hour away from a physical college campus. And believe it or not, they're actually very big areas. When you start looking at where populations are and where schools are, and you begin to say, how do we, if we believe in the power of education to transform lives, and you have people who don't have the ability to get that, what are the solutions for those types of situations? So if you're in the middle of South Dakota, or sometimes out in the middle of the states like Oklahoma or Kansas or Nebraska, uh, and we're talking about the power of education to change lives, but you've got to drive more than an hour to two hours each way, then it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to take advantage of that power. Um, so what are the solutions of bringing that to you, whether it is greater bandwidth, whether it is things like online education, um, what are the ways that we can think differently about education and provide solutions to help more of the population take advantage of those types of situations? On the flip side, when it comes to situations which I suspect we're going to see a lot of over the next couple of years, uh, you know, we live here in New England, so we know a lot about demographic changes and the, the, the power of the movement of populations to other parts of the country. So if you're in Vermont or Maine, um, being on the commission, I see a lot of these, um, the institutions that are trying to figure out how do we begin to think about serving populations in other places, perhaps, or in other ways, um, if our, you know, our young populations moving away um, to places like California or Arizona or Florida, how do we begin to serve those populations as well? Schools who are struggling with that, and you've seen a number of them closing over the last several years, um, are trying to figure out how to go about dealing with the populations that they have. And if they are going to close or merge, what are their, what are their obligations to their students? Which is another one of the questions we are trying to think our way through as well and try to help the, um, the higher education world work through. If, you've got, if you find yourself in this situation, what are some of the things you can do to either ameliorate the um, pain or to mitigate the, the, the struggles that students are going to have to go through in either a merger or a transfer or the other pieces as we move forward as well. So it's all of those types of things as we begin to move forward that uh, the MAPS project has been very much tied to um, trying to work, the, work its way through. Boy, and what valuable work right now more than ever. Um, and it really, it really ties to my, my next question because you're really hinting at this need to reimagine the higher ed system. And you, you, you've sort of gone at it in a number of ways in your comments um, in the US and the world. And so I just have to ask, do you have a vision for what you think this should look like? So I, I do continue to, and I made a bit of reference to the music industry earlier, and I, I use this metaphor um, on a regular basis, which is, um, 
when music, uh, when the music industry really began to see a transformation from, uh, I'm a huge fan of vinyl records. Um, and, you know, vinyl records became cassettes, cassettes became compact discs. Um, but in all of those, you had to sort of, for the most part, buy the package. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was the whole package that you had to buy. So except for a short period of time, um, it was, um, I guess this would have been in the uh, early 90s, where you could buy CD singles. Most of the time, if you wanted to get your favorite song or favorite couple of songs, you had to spend the $15.99 and buy the whole compact disc. Um, didn't really matter that you didn't like the other eight <laughs> songs that could be on the compact disc. You still had to buy the, buy the whole thing or nothing, um, for the most part. And um, but over time, you may remember that Napster came along. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there was this huge uproar in the music industry over this thing that allowed people to download individual songs that they liked um, in a way that the music industry did not control. Um, and the first versions of Napster, you know, were not great versions of, I mean, the music didn't sound necessarily as good. This goes back to Clayton Christensen's idea. When you disrupt an industry, the first iterations of it aren't necessarily where the industry is going to end up, but it is the way the industry begins to change. Right. Um, and Napster, of course, eventually got shut down. But you found in the process that that genie was not going to go back in the bottle. You knew that somebody was going to figure out what the next version of that was in a legal way. And sure enough, within months, of course, you begin to have things like iTunes um, and others who began to create this model um, that allowed people to now create and package individual songs for different purposes based upon what their needs are. So now I, um, with iTunes, of course, you create playlists for I'm going to the gym, I'm going to have a party, um, I just want to do um, have this when I'm driving on the road. Um, but it allowed you to take individual pieces and repackage it in different ways. Um, and over time, of course, now iTunes is um, seen as old school, as you know, things like Pandora and Spotify are out there um, that give you different versions of that. Once again, allowing people to create their experiences based upon their needs. That's really where I see higher education moving. And you begin to see that in a lot of ways. And I, I want to go back to uh, the music industry for a second. I think people listen to more music now than they ever have in their lives. I suspect that if we were able to do surveys on it, that people are listening to more music now than the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. So it wasn't that people stopped listening to music. Right. It was that the ways that they were listening to it and how they were able to access it become different. And as a result, the industry continues to grow, but it grows in different ways. I, people take more pictures now than they ever did when Kodak was a big player in the camera industry. Um, because of the ability to do it in a different way based upon what their needs are and the power that that gives them. I think that higher education is beginning to see more and more of that. I don't need to go back to school for four years to get some new skill. I don't have to get a full degree, but I do need new skills. We're talking right now in the midst of a recession. Um, as people are looking at how things will change as we go back into the workforce, um, one of the things they're talking about is how do I get new skills? But I, wait a minute, that doesn't mean I want to go back to school for a four-year degree. It means that I need to be able to get something and keep moving forward with those upskills in the same type of way. I do believe that will continue to evolve and will be a big player in higher education. Now, having said that, I also, because that sounds alarmist to some people, <laughs> I also don't think that the other roles that higher education plays are going to cease. 
because higher education has many different jobs that it's trying to do. Again, referring to Christensen, um, it is trying to, for some people, create that coming of age experience. Our residential campus um, is bigger now than it was several years ago, even though our online site has continued to grow. Um, you still have students who want to have that coming of age experience. You still have places where you're going to need um, research to be done and um, new knowledge to be produced. All of those things will still be there. Um, I'm not saying they're going away, but I am saying that a huge portion of the population may access the acquisition of new what we call case has knowledge, skills, abilities, and dispositions in different ways um, as they move forward. Uh, and that industry, that that part of higher education, I think will become a larger and larger portion of what will move forward. Mm, boy, well, and and this vision sounds very, uh, very similar to what I have read about the plan that you all are rolling out in terms of your uh, undergraduate educational experience going forward. Um, yes. And so I, I'm kind of, I'm trying to connect the dots here and maybe, maybe you can say a little bit about that, but it, it goes back to at the very beginning, you talked about um, creating an educational experience that meets learners where they're at. And that's also part of what you're, you're describing here, but in a much more significant way than what we've ever seen before. Absolutely. And we've been trying um, a number of different pilots over the years. And um, for, uh, as you um, referenced a minute ago, we are basically scholarshipping our entire incoming freshman class this year, um, in part because we are trying to understand and create what's going to be the next iteration of the residential experience um, and how might we think differently about that. Again, the residential experience serves a specific purpose in higher education, and I don't think that's going anywhere, that, that whole coming of age experience, but there are elements of it that may change over time. So we have been uh, running a pilot for a couple of years on, as you may recall, we have a College for America competency-based education experience right. um, that has been um, been being used around the country in a number of different ways and around the world, for example. Um, our, our global education movement work in refugee programs takes advantage of this. Um, a couple of years ago, we began um, asking the question and piloting a very small uh, group of students who were doing the direct assessment work, but were living on campus. Um, to see how that might play into the residential experience. What happens if you're doing this direct assessment work and projects and other things that aren't tied necessarily to seat time, but still taking advantage of all of the things on a campus that you want to do. So um, the campus life is certainly uh, about the instruction that students are getting, but it's also about the social interaction. It's about the ability to participate in all the other activities that are going on on a residential experience. And so we're looking, at, we've been asking the question of how might we think about uh, leveraging different pieces of that as we move forward, recognizing that students want those things as well. So um, when COVID came along, we've been looking at uh, different pilots and thinking we're going to be making this evolution over the next three to five years um, as we begin to think things through. But COVID has accelerated a lot of things. Um, that were going on in various industries around the country. Um, and for higher education, it's certainly accelerated this conversation about digital transformation and higher education as well. So the work we are trying to do now is very much tied to that. How do we make sure um, that we take a look at creating what that next residential experience is going to be? Haven't figured it out yet. We are spending a lot of time 
we're spending a lot of time and trying different things as we move forward, working with the faculty on campus, certainly to make sure that happens, um, and also working with other various stakeholders to take into consideration what those needs are. And again, going back to talking a lot with our students on what did you expect, what actually motivates you, what do you want to get out of this, are we actually doing the things that we say, uh, creating those tools that we talked about with our employees and listening, also with our students to say, how do we make sure those things are happening as part of the conversation as well. So the goal is to figure those things out as we move forward um, and to make those things available to more students to continue um, expanding that pool of students who can be successful. Well, I'm going to really look forward to hearing what comes out of all this. You're, you're in the midst of a, a wonderfully significant learning innovation that is going to inform the work for all of us, I think, um, going forward. So we'll have to stay in touch so you can you can update me. You know, we also have a doctoral a doctoral program in higher ed at Bay Path, and I I think this would be a great thing for some of our students to get close to as well and study as you are going through this. Um, yep. Absolutely. It will be. And this is one of those places why and it's one of the reasons why I love higher education so much, because even though there is an element of competition to it, there's also a huge element of community tied to it. Um, and that's very much around how do we help each other get better at this? I mean, we say all the time there are tens of millions of students who uh, need access to higher education. And SNHU can't solve everyone's, um, so, uh, can't solve the problem for everyone. We should be working more and more to collaborate and work with others on, particularly those students who have some college and no degree. I mean, that group of students really is one that's close to my heart. It is, if you're going to engage in this, how do we make sure you are being successful? It's also, by the way, one of the issues that the MAPS team has been looking at as well, which is how many of those tens of millions of students, some will say it's 30 to 40 million students have um, no, um, um, no degree as a result of all the hard work they've put into it. So the more we can talk and engage with other institutions and um, organizations that are trying to do this work, the more that we will feel like we're ultimately achieving the goal of our true mission, which is to help as many students be successful, whether it is SNHU or not. Mm, absolutely. So Greg, let me end with my signature question. I ask every guest uh, to tell us, to, to pull out your crystal ball and tell us what you see ahead for higher education that we need to be paying attention to right now in the present, even in the midst of this pandemic. Um, and, and to maybe to add on to that, because I know you think this way all the time, what is the opportunity for innovation and transformation um, that comes in this moment from, from whatever it is you see that is most compelling to be paying attention to? Sure. So I think the more we appreciate just how exponentially fast things are changing for the generations that we are trying to educate and the way they interact with the world and the way that they see each other and the way that those things change their view of life in general, the, the constructs that they operate by. Um, so um, a lot of my background is in generational change and generational studies. Um, and it's tied very much to um, one of my favorite authors, Mark Twain. Ah. And uh, Mark Twain, one of his books is um, the book of um, the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, where yeah. Yeah. A, 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 a gentleman from, I think it's the 1800s, um, goes back to, I think, the 6th century uh, King, well, he, I think it's, he's saying this is King Arthur's Court. Um, I don't, King Arthur, I think, was a little later, but they're saying he's in the 6th century. But 
what you find in that situation is the hard learnings of how technology can move exponentially, but human beings only move at a step-by-step -step pace. And what happens when those two things come into conflict? And of course, by the end of the book, he's tried to introduce these technologies faster than the society is able to adapt to them. I think that one of the challenges for higher education is to recognize part of the logistics of learning and how that's changing so fast that we're asking things of our faculty now that are very different than you would have asked back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s because things are moving so, so much faster. I was uh, reading a book called iGen not too long ago, and you begin to think about things like the smartphone and how that impacts um, even what we consider learnings to be, uh, you know, when we were going through college, the idea was go to the uh, library, spend your time searching the stacks, you would come <laughs> up with research. And now it is, it's difficult to even appreciate what is real and what is not anymore. <laughs> Because truth is so hard to come by when seeing is no longer believing. We can tinker with images and sound and people have access to more information than they will ever use. And how do you navigate that world um, in a way that allows you to be successful? Um, that is going to be, I think, one of the biggest challenges of what higher education has to face moving forward, which is um, access to information is no longer the, the barrier. Trend, uh, understanding and interpreting information and understanding what may or may not be true and how that information varies from population to population. All of these are going to be big parts of that conversation. The other big one will continue to be equity. Mm. It's a conversation we are having over and over. The more we talk about education deserts, the more we understand that as digital transformation happens, the big danger is it will only exacerbate the gap between those who have and those who do not. So those who are able to go to schools where they can immerse themselves in simulations and online experiences and technology tools will continue to have the better opportunities unless we find ways to actually make those opportunities available to those who need it the most, but have the ability to afford it the least. I, I think that continues to be one of the big challenges that we've got to find our way through. Uh, so I think that in some ways, what is old is new again, or what is new is old again, <laughs> however that phrase goes. Uh, but it, th those issues will continue to be there, but I think they, are only, they will only be accelerated. And so, um, and we will have to find solutions to them that bring to bear um, all of the skills that we have at various types of institutions around the country and around the world. Mm, boy, and there's, there's ample opportunity, isn't there, in, in each of those areas for innovation and transformation. Um, Absolutely. So, boy, well, that is a, that's an excellent note to end on. I am uh, just so grateful for your time. It's been just a, a pleasure to have you on the, the show today. Thank you so much for, again, the opportunity to do so. I'm Melissa Morse-Olson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Join me next week for another Ingenious You conversation with online learning design and technology expert Lori Polito. As CEO of Ease Learning, Lori and her team are true pioneers in the online learning and design world. They have worked with scores of institutions over their 20-year history 
and they know what it takes to create the kind of online learning experiences that will enable student success and achievement. According to Polito, everything is shifting with online learning. The online student experience is now following an entirely new round of brand institutions, institutions that are distinguishing themselves in providing an engaging and high quality experience for their students. This is the future of online learning, says Polito, and this is where there is enormous opportunity for even the smallest of institutions without brand recognition. Subscribe now to make sure you do not miss this provocative conversation with this leading edge thinker and learning design leader and innovator, Lori Polito. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Be well and stay strong.